And welcome to the sixth episode of Did You Do Your Homework, the pop culture podcast that teaches you everything about anything and where we make doing your homework actually fun. My name is Kaylee Scouten, data analyst and general nerd. Helping me each week to discuss our homework, build the curriculum, and share next episode's assignments are... Martha Sullivan, N7 Soldier, and the First Human Spectre. <laughs> and uh, Pete Romberg, somebody who is not playing Mass Effect Andromeda. <laughs> I haven't started yet, because when I start, I can't guarantee that I'll stop. That's so. Where I'm at well. <laughs> and, and I'm only about halfway through Mass Effect 3, because I think it's 2010 in terms of video game years. So I, I feel you on that, man. <laughs> That is, that is my tomorrow and Friday plan, is to just sit at home and play Mass Effect. <laughs> nice. For a hundred years. Yeah. Before we get started, it's only fair that we share with you our pop culture credentials. <laughs> Other than Mass Effect, obviously. Well, yeah. You don't know what my credential is yet, Pete. Don't speak for me. <laughs> I do. It says right here. Shush! Spoilers! Okay. Um, <clears throat> this is the part of the show where we share with you... The last piece of media we consume, regardless of quality, prestige, or guilty pleasure factor. Pete, what was your last pop culture indulgence? So this afternoon I had the opportunity to go into a local school and help out with an hour of code that one of the teachers was hosting for, um, as I found out later, the school was doing like a staff versus students dodgeball thing but not all the kids wanted to go to it so the kids who didn't went to this hour of code in the computer lab um it's a website from code i'm gonna say dot org um and the idea is they have all these really cool modules to teach kids how to code um in a very like WYSIWYG type way um so some kids are doing like star wars based coding where it's like you know make bb8 go where you tell him to go using code and, and others are doing like more complicated stuff. It was really fascinating as somebody who only knows the barest of bare bones HTML. Uh, I feel like I learned a lot about how coding works. Um, and it was cool to be back in the classroom. Uh, it's been a while since I, uh, was a teacher. So it was neat to be back there. Um, so code.org hour of code. You don't even have to be a teacher to do it. You can teach yourself how to code by checking it out and, Make little BB-8s and R2s uh, run around and stuff like that. At some point, I would like to deeply pick your brain about how that went, because that's something that is very hot in the library world right now, and I think I would like to do an Hour of Code program. But I am not a coder, and I have never taught any sort of computer stuff. So I would love to talk to you about how that played out. As It's very, cursorily, it's very self-directed. Um, so both myself and the teacher running it know very little about code or computers. Like she knows a bit, she knew a bit about Java. I knew bare bones HTML. Um, and that was okay. fine. Uh, very self-directed. The programs do most of the teaching. We can talk later. Cool. Good deal. I'll go next. Um, so my husband has been rewatching Mad Men. Um, which is not a show that I have ever watched start to finish. I got very bogged down in season two the last time I tried and just sort of wandered away and stopped. Um, but I have found that little bits at a time and then really annoying. I'm sure that he gets super annoyed with me when I ask him about things that I would know if I would sit still and watch the TV show with him for a while. It is turned out to be really the perfect way for me to watch the show. So on... Sunday, I watched like five hours of season five when, if you're familiar with the show, um, Roger Sterling is at like peak sassiness. So by the end of that like whole day, I was like, well, I guess I like Mad Men now. Um, <laughs> so we're in season six at this point. Um, yeah, it's fine. Don sucks. Uh, but <laughs> All of the ladies are super great and um, really awesome female characters is one of my pop culture kryptonites. So, yeah, that is what I'm enjoying right now. Very good. Um, my pop culture credential is I started watching Star vs. the Forces of Evil, which I believe is a 
do, do, do Cartoon Network, but I might be wrong. It's Disney. I'm sorry. It is a Disney show. Um, and it is about a princess that comes of age and gets her magic powers, screws up royally, and gets sent to Earth to sort of like, as like sort of like a boarding school situation of like, you need to learn how to be a proper princess in America, which we don't really have. But anyway, <laughs> it's just a lot of fun, you know, hijinks ensue, that sort of thing. So it's a good time. Uh, I'm going to backtrack real fast. Pete, are you telling me that you did not read or watch or enjoy anything in between your work day and recording this episode today? Um, I did, but it was all the homework for today, so I don't feel like that counts. Oh, no, that's true. Yeah. Dang, I thought I was calling you out. Sorry to put you on blast. Yep. I mean, the only other thing is the <laughs> the song by the band The Unicorns, I Was Born a Unicorn, which I might have been listening to right before we started recording because of The Last Unicorn. So That's, That sounds wonderful. YouTube it slash it might make an appearance in this episode, depending on how I'm feeling. Kaylee, you want to bring us back on topic? <laughs> yes. So, um, so our topic for this week was sacrifice. Yay! Um, which we I feel like Super we got a lot happy, of really fun times. <laughs> Super fun. I feel like we got a lot of really great topics and covered a wide range of things. So let's take on a tour of sacrifice. Um, my homework assignment this week was The Last Unicorn by Peter S. Beagle. Peter S. Beagle. Sorry, I've been staring at the it's... name like all day and I couldn't remember what it was called. <laughs> it's okay. Um, <laughs> which deals with sort of a intentional sacrifice and a sort of side sacrifice. One from uh, Prince Lear and one from Mommy Fortuna who kind of just everything catches up with her and she just bites the dust. Um, so, Martha, what were your thoughts? Um, The Last Unicorn is, without hyperbole, my favorite book in the world. I have read it about 25 times, uh, which is an estimate, but I think it's also sort of a conservative estimate. Um, I have a hard time vocalizing how many of the very specific like story tropes that just get me that this book hits. Um, but yeah, uh, Pete and I were talking about it a little bit before we started recording um, that I, I read this book for the first time when I was too young to be um, able to really appreciate uh, what the book is actually about, um, which I happen to think, I think it's a book about the loss of innocence, uh, which is a sacrifice in and of itself. Um, but yeah, it's my favorite I, yeah, I love the movie. Um, I've listened to the soundtrack 827 times. I can sing all the songs. It's, it's my favorite. It is, it's a seminal work for me. It really, I think, um, it played a lot into the kind of literature that I enjoy and the kind of fantasy stories that I enjoy. Um, yeah, it, it's a cornerstone for me. You know, I find it fascinating, like, this was the first time I'd read the book, but I'd seen the movie like multiple times. And it's amazing how true to the book, the movie actually is like, I'm reading the well, book. Peter Beagle, like... uh, Peter wrote the script for the movie. Okay, Well, that would explain it. <laughs> yeah. And that art style just gets me. <laughs> uh, Pete, what did you think? Um, this is the first time that I've read the book. This is the first, I, I've never seen the movie. This is my first um, exposure to the last unicorn in any meaningful sense. And I am frankly furious uh, with myself for never having read it or watched it or done anything. Um, of all the homeworks that have been assigned thus far on this show, all six episodes, this is 
the homework that I am happiest that anyone assigned, myself included, because I got <laughs> to experience this and I got to be exposed to this and reading it was absolutely mind-bogglingly amazing. Um, every other, I, reading it on the Kindle, every other digital page felt like, I was like, this is amazing! Um, or, you know, just the the language that he uses, the fantasy tropes that he's doing, I needed to have a notebook next to me to be jotting down ideas to steal for D&D campaigns that I'm running. Um, <laughs> because he, it, it's such great ideas uh, suffused throughout. Um, so... Uh, many thanks for assigning this as a homework assignment. Um, this was like the highlight of my week. So, uh, <laughs> well, good. I, I, I love this. Um, I love it when people love the things that I love. <laughs> <laughs> and Martha, you and I have had so many weeks where we have been uh, unintentionally, mutually antagonizing each other with our homework. So this is a nice. Like, I know. <laughs> thank you, Kaylee, for assigning something that we can both just like gush over. <laughs> um, Pete, as a side note. The movie is on Netflix, so if you want to take... Yeah, that's that's been talked about, don't worry. I'm sure in the next week or so um, that'll okay. happen. It's got an all-star cast. Right, I, I suggested it as a... After watching Legion, we could watch this as a, a denouement. And Marn was like, no, that's not how this will work. I'm going to use all the tissue when we watch The Last Unicorn, so we're going <laughs> to need a happy thing no, after that... that. That's true. Pete, would you like to introduce your homework? Well, Kaylee, first, what oh. did you think of The Last Unicorn? Because this was your first time. Or did you already talk about that? Am I losing my mind? I gave it a quick description, but I didn't actually talk about it. Um, yeah, because I know this was your first time reading it too, right? Yes, I loved it. I thought the way that he writes and it you get enough description on things without it being like three pages of how you know the trees look. And it's just you, you get immersed and put in and it's like you're you have like this perfect mental image of what's going on and in ways that you wouldn't think like it's just um like you can almost like see and imagine the feelings that these characters are going through and that in and of itself is just kind of like an amazing feeling because not many authors can do that which makes me really want to pick up his other works as well i've actually never read anything else by him I've just read this book 872 times. <laughs> <laughs> he has a spooky cat book I want to read. Hmm. Pete, tell us about the X-Men. Cool, yeah. So uh, I assigned X2 colon X-Men United colon 9-11 colon other subtitles colon the movie. Oh, electric um, Boogaloo? Electric Boogaloo <laughs> colon the movie. <laughs> um, this is the second X-Men movie. Uh, it came out in 2003 um it is oh my god was it that long ago yeah it was, it was. um i'll oh. be honest i assigned this mostly because i had recently enough seen logan when the topic of sacrifice came up that i was deeply in x-men land and i thought what is a better sacrifice than the story of gene gray and the phoenix uh which was then ruined in x-men the last stand or whatever the third x-men movie was um X2, if you will recall, is a combination of uh, the uh, Chris Claremont, I think, uh, graphic novel God Loves, Man Kills, and Return to Weapon X. Um, we've got Colonel Stryker, played by uh, the amazing Brian Cox. He kidnaps Xavier and uses his son's mind control mutant ability to make Xavier try to kill all the mutants because he doesn't like mutants even though his son is one. Um, you, we've got the X-Men teaming up with Magneto and his compatriots to free Xavier, take down uh, uh, Stryker um, and his crony Lady Deathstrike. Uh, we get Nightcrawler, that's always fun. Uh, and it ends with Jean Grey um, sacrificing herself, pulling down a massive dam, drowning in the water, and the final shot of, oh my god, is that the phoenix under the water going to rise? So um, that's sort of the, the main sacrifice, I think, of the film, although there are others as well. Um, I guess we'll start with Kaylee. Thoughts on X2? So I hadn't seen this movie probably in, I would say, like 10 years, I think was the last time I saw this movie. And it was really interesting to revisit it because I, when I watched it the first time, I was obsessed with X-Men. 
And then, like, watching it again, I was like, oh, man. It has not aged quite as well as other movies. It has not aged well. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I was kind of glad to revisit it. I kind of want to go back and watch a couple of the other X-Men movies that I think may have aged better. Um, But I do feel like her sacrifice was one of the first ones that I've experienced in media where it's like, oh, you're not coming back from this. And then, you know, because it's X-Men, she comes back like later. No one dies. No one dies in comics. No one dies in comics. But it, it <laughs> felt like she had died in comics, even though nobody ever dies in comics. Um, to my young, young mind, <laughs> which wasn't actually that young, but it's always more naive than most people's. Spoiler, X3, The Last Stand, aged even worse than you remember it being, and you remember it being pretty bad to begin with. So oh, it was pretty bad. Yeah. It was pretty bad. It hasn't aged I'm gonna go on. I'm going to go on record as saying, and I believe this to be true, X3 is not as terrible as everybody believes that it is. It's not good, <laughs> but it's also not the worst movie I've ever seen, and I think that people tend to talk about it like that. I would agree with you on that. It is not the worst movie I've ever seen. Total agree. I wouldn't willingly watch it again, but I would. I'd, I'd hate watch it in a heartbeat. Uh, I'd, <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd have a couple drinks and hate watch it like crazy. That's how I watched you Suicide Squad. Like it was fantastic. Oh, Suicide Squad. That's a movie you gotta hate watch. Because it's not I good. can't. Anyway, real fast. Yeah. I like X2. I actually think it has aged better than you guys are making it out to sound um i think it is the best by far of the brian singer x-men movies did he Um, only do the first three i think okay he did let me look it up before i say something that is going to involve a correction yeah so he did x-men x2 days of future past and apocalypse which i haven't seen um, and I do think that X2 is better than Days of Future Past, which is a mess, hmm. which is a narrative mess. Um, but it's not what we're talking about right now. No, I was, I was going to say, we can fight about this <laughs> off the air. <laughs> um, but no, I think that uh, in terms of kind of highlighting Logan and everything that he's gone through and sort of what it means to him to have a relationship with uh, Charles and the students at the school um, and you know, if we're all watching Legion right now, X2 is really the first, our first um, movie or like live action rendition of the David character is the, is in X2. Um, It's bent a little bit from the comics, but I mean, so is the TV show. Uh, But yeah, I enjoy it a lot. It's fun. I like Anna Paquin as Rogue and she gets some good moments in that movie. I'm not watching Legion. Maybe I should change that. You should absolutely change that. Pete or Peter or I will find an excuse to assign it as homework in the future, I'm sure. Okay. So I am going to skip on ahead in the interest of time uh, to talk about my homework. Do it. Um, which is the first Puella Magi Madoka Magica movie, which... God, that is a mouthful. Yes. Um, <laughs> so, Puella Magi Madoka Magica was a, or is, currently, it still exists. Um, it is an anime that came out in 2011. Uh, the title roughly translates to Magical Girl Madoka Magica, which is fun. Puella Magica is Latin for literally magical I was going to say. I was going to say, they do some fun stuff by substituting in some Latin for Japanese, uh, which is kind of linguistically interesting. Um, but this first, this film that I assigned to you guys, Beginnings, is um, a recut version of the first eight episodes of the show. It's a 12-episode show. So there is a sequel film called Eternal, which encompasses the uh, back half of the season. And then a follow-up film called Rebellion, which is only sort of attached to the show. But anyway, this is the film that everyone is talking about when they talk about the deconstruction of the magical girl genre. Uh, It involves 
Madoka and her uh, junior high friends finding out that there are magical girls in the world that fight witches. Um, and in order to become a magical girl, you just have to make a wish, which contracts you with a pink and white cute cat creature called Cubay. Uh, if you make a wish, he will grant your wish. And in exchange, you get all the powers and abilities of a magical girl and you get to kill witches and save the world, which sounds really fun and cheery until you realize everything that you have given up uh, to become a magical girl and everything that being one entails. Um, I don't know how familiar you guys were with this show before I assigned it, um, but especially coming off the heels of watching Sailor Moon, I'm very interested to know what you thought. <laughs> Kaylee, have I, you seen this before? I saw, I want to say maybe the first two episodes, maybe the first episode, because you had recommended it to me years ago at this point. So I, this was like a rewatch, and I had watched farther this time than um, I had in past, because... Side note about me, I'm very bad about keeping up with things. <laughs> I'll be like, oh, this is really cool, watch the first episode, and then like never pick it up, and except for like maybe five years later, I'm the worst sometimes. Um, unless I get into something and then it's like full-blown. Um, this was interesting, I think, is the word that comes to mind at first, because it was very, very dark, and not at all what I was expecting. Um and I've been sort of thinking about it a lot since I watched it, where, like, it sort of takes a, on a very dark and twisted way of looking at the magical girl genre to sort of be like, no, this isn't just girls become, you know, magical because they're, you know, amazing or awesome or whatever. I mean, like, I think it's mentioned several times that Madoka is not special at all. And but she's got like the most superpowers of everybody, so um, which is kind of an interesting aspect of it. Um, I'm I'm not somebody who has ever had any interest whatsoever in the magical girl genre. Um, I when I began watching this, I was sort of white knuckling through it of just like the uh, all right. I guess Martha and I are back to mutually antagonizing each other. Um, but but Martha, you're right that this like I didn't know that people were talking about this as the show or movie or whatever that deconstructs the genre. But this absolutely deconstructs the genre. And while it's not a genre that I have any real interest in, it's a genre that I'm at least aware of. Um, and so and and aware of the tropes of. And so watching this deconstruction i was really fascinated so that by the last you know half hour or so i was enjoying it a lot more than i thought i would when last episode you started speaking in tongues when you were giving your homework assignment of uh <laughs> magic madoka magica um i was like oh boy what am i in for um it first off it's gorgeous um yeah like, the only anime I've watched in the last ten years is stuff like, you know, Akira or Ghost in the Shell, and those are rewatches. Or, or uh, Miyazaki. Um, and those are all, A, feature-length films, B, critically acclaimed, C, they're all, like, 10 to 20 to 30 years old at this point. Um, and then D, they're all well-known for being gorgeous. And this was absolutely beautiful to watch. Um... I like that the art is, I mean, it's beautiful, but it's also very straightforward until you get to the witch labyrinths, which are just yeah. like super cool. somebody dropped acid and yep. got into the mixed media playground. Yep. It's like, oh, we're doing like <laughs> spinny uh, uh, musical, um, not notes, but like full on musical uh, uh, writing, whatever you call that. Um, yeah. Really, really gorgeous. Um, is the anime magical girl genre my genre? No. Uh, but this was a really, really interesting movie, um, to watch and I enjoyed it. Uh, but to roll this into, so to roll Madoka into our larger discussion, um, one of the things that's so interesting about sacrifice as a plot point in this show is that the girls don't know that they're sacrificing anything. Um, what you find out towards the end of the movie is that part of becoming a magical girl involves uh, Kyubei, this uh, kind of mystical creature, 
separating their soul from their body so that it can live in what is called a soul gem um, and basically turns their bodies into automatons which don't feel pain. So they are unintentionally um, and ignorantly giving up their humanity in order to do this. Um, we've written down a couple of different classifications of different kinds of sacrifices. Did we note um, unintentional somewhere? I, I've got a whole three-tranche way to think about sacrifice, but I didn't break it down I, I broke it down more in the way that it works within the narrative than I did in terms mm -hmm. of whether it's intentional, unintentional, good or bad, etc. Okay. Okay. So yeah, I see we have the redemptive sacrifice, the heroic sacrifice, and the mess... Pronounce that for me, Pete, so I don't make a fool out of myself <laughs> on our podcast. Messianic. Messianic, if you're from Chicago. Messianic is the more usual. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so, so like I, I was thinking about this... You know, throughout the last week or so, um, and I thought about three different ways that sacrifices work within the structure of most narratives. Um, again, this isn't going into divisions of intentional versus unintentional. This isn't going into divisions of successful or unsuccessful. Um, this isn't even going into divisions of selfish versus non-selfish, um, which I know, Martha, is something that you were you were sort of labeling uh, uh, in other parts of the notes that we'll get into, the noble or heroic versus the selfish sacrifice. This is sort of sidestepping all that, and it's looking at more what the sacrifice is doing for the narrative. Um, so the redemptive sacrifice is someone like Darth Vader at the end of Return of the Jedi. Um, somebody did something bad, they are now sacrificing themselves to make amends. Um, you know, Vader uh, is clearly bad, uh, but then he saves Luke, throws the Emperor into the uh, the shaft, and, uh, you know, redeems himself through his actions. That would be the redemptive sacrifice. Uh, the next sacrifice I have is the heroic sacrifice. This is somebody sacrifices herself in a, his, in a heroic way, but for small stakes gains. Um, it's no longer canon, but in the old Star Wars Extended Universe, Chewbacca died when he successfully got like the solos onto the millennium falcon they flew off and then a moon crashed onto the planet that he was on so like a the only way you can kill chewbacca is with a moon which checks out uh but b <laughs> he sacrificed himself doing something deeply heroic but which also did like wasn't a a world changing sacrifice it was a your classic movie scene of like i'll hold them off you keep going ah and then you know then that that person dies but the heroes can continue that to me is a heroic sacrifice um well so when you say small stakes gains like if if but, so okay so so i, I should so, say small stakes gains are best viewed in terms of my third version like third definition of sacrifice so let me do that and then we can come back okay to number two sure um and, and, and so my, my third category of sacrifice is the messianic sacrifice, which is where somebody sacrifices herself to save the world. Um, this is Jesus, uh, literally. Uh, that's where the, the name comes from. Um, it's Neo in the Matrix. Uh, in the third Matrix, he, what, dies and the robots take over, but they're good robots or something? I don't remember the third Matrix that well. Um, but, like, he's he's a Jesus figure. Um the whole crew of Rogue One, um, individually, they might make heroic sacrifices. Churrit dies by, um, you know, when, when he does whatever he does. K2SO dies, killing a bunch of stormtroopers, holding them off uh, to let Jin, um, you know, get the, the Death Star plans. But as a group, they go on this suicide mission that transmits the Death Star plans to the Republic. And so in the context of the story of Rogue One, they all perform a messianic sacrifice where their deaths, uh, th th their sacrifice um, importantly and dramatically impacts the world, impacts the arc. It's, it's your third act sacrifice. Um, and so that's my distinction between heroic and messianic. How do you classify Gandalf's sacrifice in The Fellowship mm, of the Ring? Good one. Um, that's great. Uh, I'd say that's in the context of the story that's a heroic sacrifice mostly because it happens in the first third of the lord of the rings 
um, and he comes back. Um, obviously, he's, he's kind of a Jesus character, but, like, his sacrifice is the I'll hold them off, you keep going. Um, but their keep going is to save the world. Definitely. Frodo, if, if Frodo died at the end of Lord of the Rings, or at the end of, of the quest, that would be a messianic sacrifice. So it, it, I guess it comes down to, like, well, does the if, sacrifice... If he died if he died in order to save yes. the world. Yes. Um, it, it, for me, it comes down to how it's functioning within the story. And mm-hmm. so if the death is directly tied into capital saving the world, it can it, it's messianic. Whereas if it's, you know, in the first or second um, act of the story... Even though it's furthering the quest, it's that heroic sacrifice. And that's not to diminish it, like, this isn't a ranked hierarchy. These are just three different ways to think about it. So I want to talk about intention. um, Because in The Last Unicorn, we have a lot of sacrifice going on uh, with different intent. And the question I would like to pose to you both is, is it sacrifice... Like, does the intention change whether or not we can call something a sacrifice? Uh, specifically, Mami Fortuna's scene, uh, who is the witch keeping the the carnival of magical, well, of illusioned animals. Um, so she's keeping a harpy, which is like, other than the unicorn, the only real thing in this carnival. Uh, it gets loose and it kills her. Uh, but the way in which it does... I, we have we have that sort of implied as a sacrifice in the book, but I'm wondering if that's ac- if that's an accurate uh, labeling of what happens because basically, Mommy Fortuna it, she knows that by holding the harpy she's gonna die. Like that's at some point the harpy is gonna get out. It's an immortal magical creature. It's and the first thing it does is it's gonna eat her, and that ends up being exactly what happens. Um. Uh, I'll be honest, you both have talked about this in terms of sacrifice, like this scene, and I never, uh, again, the literally one time I've read this, I've never read this as a sacrifice moment. I've read this as the, like, I've made my bed and I'm sleeping in it, but not as a a sacrifice in in maybe the way that I'm thinking about sacrifice in terms of this episode. Um, I could Well, I, I think that, and this is where I kind of want to define what a sacrifice is. So... Can we agree that a sacrifice is giving something up in order to gain something else? Is it that, or is it giving something up with the intent that you know that you will not get something else? Because generally it results in... Like, when I think of sacrifice, I think of death. Well, yeah, but usually if somebody is giving themselves up to die, it's to gain something else. So, like, continuing, continuing with the Star Wars metaphor in Rogue One... Like that whole team gives up their lives for so that the rebellion can continue. That's I mean, true. This is this is where we get into like pointless or or stupid sacrifices. But I think that even those are given or happen with the intent of something happening. It just then maybe doesn't happen. And I, I guess for me, it comes down to like one, one reason I was thinking about like the three types of sacrifices is in terms of the sacrifice to the narrative. Mama Fortuna might have thought of of her own death as a sacrifice. She might have thought, well, I made a bunch of money running this night circus thing um, for a number of years, but now the harpy's eating me, and so that's a sacrifice that I made, and I knew it was coming. Um, but in terms of how it functions within the book, I didn't see that as a sacrifice because it's like, yeah, she was keeping a bunch of animals and or mystical creatures imprisoned, and she got what she deserved. Um, so in the one sense, it is a sacrifice. She knowingly gave up her future for a successful present, um, or also her own pride at having a harpy imprisoned, which I think was a big part of that as well. Um, but in terms of the arc of the narrative, in terms of the plot of The Last Unicorn, it wasn't a sacrifice. It was a getting your just desserts. Well, and I think, Pete, that this is where you and I are differing, because I think that sacrifice is driven by intent. Um, Mm. And when I look at that sequence in The Last Unicorn, I mean, I think that there are two 
there are two big moments of sacrifice that happen in that book. And I do count Mommy Fortuna's scene as one of them, which is why I wrote it down. Um, at that moment, I think that she is sacrificing herself on the altar to the harpy in exchange for having kept her. Um, this is where I want to pull in the quote that you wrote down, which mm -hmm. has a couple of applications in the book. Um, but the quote from the book is, real magic can never be made by offering someone else's liver. You must tear out your own and not expect to get it back. Um, I think the quote specifically at that moment in time is referring to Schmendrick, the magician. Um, no, it's, it's, it's actually said directly to Mama Fortuna. Um, Ma Mama oh. Fortuna is saying, I'd happily tear out her assistant's liver and give it to the harpy uh, uh, if I could do this yes. magic. And the unicorn is like, yeah, that's great. But like, it's got to be your liver. Right. Um, so actually that, and now I, you know, get to eat crow for not knowing my favorite book as well as I thought that I did. <laughs> um, but no, this is her, this is her accepting that this is her accepting the price of, um, of keeping the harpy, the price, uh, the price that she, she could never pay because she doesn't have real magic. She just has illusion. And this is her moment to literally, offer up her own liver on the altar of this magical creature that's yeah that's how i read the scene but i also as i said read sacrifice as a um plot device of intention rather than something the narrative does and i'm, I'm also somewhat intentionally limiting my my i guess definition or description of sacrifice to prevent going too far out of out, out, like into left field like I'm, I'm trying to limit it to how it plays within the narrative so i i totally get where you're coming from um and using your definition i think that that's a a very good like example of a, a sacrifice well and because i think like people die in stories all the time right um death and i i don't think like i think that if if a character dies in service to the narrative but it's not an intentional, like it's not something that the character chose or that the character is offering up themselves in service to the narrative. I wouldn't call that a sacrifice. So do we get to go into the topic of non-consensual sacrifice now? Sure. Great. <laughs> um, so um, I'm going to start with some, uh, with a non-spoiler thing, which is in, in X2, Magneto is a character who has always been about by any means necessary. He has always been Malcolm X to uh, Charles Xavier's Martin Luther King. Um, and he's very okay with sacrificing other people to for the greater good of mutant kind. Um, and so I think that that, like, he, here we're talking a little bit about what, what you're talking about, Martha, about, like, Magneto sacrificing himself would be, like, a sacrifice, but... When he, um, in X3, throws Mystique in the way of, like, the anti-mutant darts or whatever and then drops her like a bad habit, like, that's a sacrifice, but it's not a sacrifice that you're okay with, um, with describing as such, because it's not consensual. False. Okay. Continue. Um, because, <laughs> yeah. So, again, it's the question of intent. Um, I would just call that magneto's sacrifice not mystique's hmm he is sacrificing one of his key players and that may be a callous way of looking at it but um to bring it back to x2 um striker is striker is the one offering up his son uh for the for the furthering of his own goals david is the one that loses everything but it's not david's it's not David's sacrifice, it's just David's loss. Hmm. This might be semantics, but I think it's important um, in terms of the, like, to, to frame it in the discussion. Well, and that's interesting, because I was definitely viewing it the other way. Um, I, I was thinking about who is losing versus who is giving up, and that is different. Mm-hmm. Well, I was going to go ahead and contrast that idea of the greater good sacrifice to the idea of a personal sacrifice but that feels slightly less applicable now that you have pulled the rug out from under me well what if you what if you call it a selfish sacrifice rather than a personal 
Well, so so I would actually argue that all the sacrifices we've been talking about thus far are what I would call greater good sacrifices because they might be sacrificing other people, but they're doing so for the greater good of either mutant kind or anti-mutant kind. I was going to say, let's call that perceived greater good. <laughs> yeah. Um, Quote unquote, the greater good. <laughs> um, the greater good. The greater good. <laughs> um, as an example of personal sacrifice, I want to talk about Get Out. Um, and I recognize that's in theaters right now. So this, dear listener, is your spoiler warning for Get Out. Um, if you don't want to have that spoiled for you, go ahead and skip ahead you know, 30 seconds or whatever, um, until we're done talking about it. Good. Yes, we've all skipped ahead, or we're still listening? Fantastic. Um, <laughs> so, in Get Out, um, the twist is that all the happy white people led by Bradley Whitford are, uh, bidding on black people to put their body, their brains, into these black bodies to live forever and be super strong and awesome and stuff. And that, to me, is the personal sacrifice because it's like we are going to sacrifice um, these black bodies, these black people, um, for our own personal benefit. It's not for the greater good of mutant kind. It's not for the greater good of anti-mutant agenda. It's purely because I'm an old person now and I would really like to be young and strong and fast and hey, I'm probably racist and I don't view black people as people, so I'm going to take their brains out and put my brain in. And um, there we go. They got sacrificed on the altar of me. So when I was coming up with these thoughts of greater goods, quote-unquote greater good sacrifice versus personal sacrifice, I was thinking in terms of who was getting sacrificed. Uh, but again, Martha, you uh, sort of <laughs> spun that entirely around, so I'm not sure if this is even <laughs> applicable anymore. Well, it's all a matter of interpretation. It's how we're interpreting these stories. Um, but yeah, I think that the the selfish sacrifice or the, like, I am going to sacrifice this other thing for my own gain. I mean, that's a very villain move. So it's a, it's a, yes. Sorry, in relation to that, would you categorize the sacrifice exhibited in Puella, Magica, Madoka, as a selfish sacrifice or not well it's an interesting question because there there's no intent because they don't know what they're doing um or at least in terms of their souls like obviously they understand that to be to be a magical girl is to you know purposefully put themselves in danger um the families kind of disappear after the first episode or so so you don't really get a lot of the like and now I'm hiding from my family. Which is unfortunate um, because I love her mother. <laughs> well, and you do get to see how a lot of the girls end up alone um, by, you know, sort of side effects of their wishes. Um, so, yeah, in intent kind of makes that one an interesting choice. Um, and I, I don't know that I would call it selfish because so they're, they're getting a wish but they're also getting that wish in exchange for putting themselves in very great danger and saving the world. Yeah. Um, it gets really interesting when you watch the back half and you find out why all of this is happening, which sends it into sort of a nihilistic kind of spiral. Um, but for the purposes of what we've watched, um, I think that there's enough understanding of the danger they're placing themselves in in exchange for this wish that they're getting, um, that I wouldn't call it selfish. Okay. Um, I'm glad that you brought up villain, like, like that, that the sacrificing others feels villainous. Um, because I completely agree in any context, sacrificing someone else feels villainous. Um, but I feel like the, <laughs> my the quote-unquote greater good sacrifice is villainy that you can like understand and maybe be em empathetic towards um you know you don't agree with magneto but you sort of get where he's coming from kill one save a thousand yeah exactly um whereas the like the the personal the all for me sacrifice is definitely more a like you're a villain and you're really just a villain and i'm gonna root for the good guys um, 
So I, I think that it's not just intent. Yes, that is intent. Like, what is the, not just the intent of the sacrifice, but what is the intent of the goal of the sacrifice? Um, I think plays an important role as well. There are two things that I want to make sure that we definitely touch on. And the first is, if the if the sacrifice itself is undone while mm. the benefits still remain, does that lessen the effect, like, does that lessen the impact of the sacrifice? I'm thinking specifically of, you know, we were kind of joking about it before, but the fact that no one dies in comics, does that make it less effective every time a superhero sacrifices themselves or gives up their powers um, the fact that we know that eventually it's going to come around, does that make it less effective um, as a, you know, as part of a story, as part of the narrative? Yeah. And I would like to add to that, like, pretty much every single Disney movie has that trope where you know they're not going to stay dead. Unless it's the mom. Unless it's the mom. <laughs> and then... And then they're dead. <laughs> yeah. Um. I, I think it 100% lessens it. Uh, eh, yeah, 100% tough. I think it 99% of the time lessens it. Um, <laughs> even even if the character doesn't know? Like, even if the character... So so here's the example. I'm, I'm not looking at this from a character point of view. I'm looking at this from, like, an audience point of view. Um, mm-hmm. I recently have been playing Mass Effect 3 because, again, I think it's 2010 in terms of video game game time uh it took me a while to get into mass effect um in one of the potential missions you can do you reconnect with a character from mass effect 2 called grunt you lead him and a team of his buddies um against some baddie and at the uh, you, you make a bunch of choices during that mission and i chose some choices that basically sacrificed grunt's team to help save the Rachni Queen, um, because I've saved her in every other game, so I might as well keep saving her here, and I don't care about Grunt's team, whom I've never met. Um, <gasps> gasp! Um, so, like, so, so like Grunt's team dies, whatever, I don't care. Uh, and then, like, I'm almost at my ship, and then a bunch of baddies show up, and, and it cuts to a cutscene, and Grunt's like, the classic, you go on, I'll hold them off. And I'm like, oh my god, is he gonna die? Because of the choices I made? This is so moving. This is so powerful. I'm feeling emotions, which I don't feel. Um, and especially not during video <laughs> games. Um, and so, like, Grunt kills a bunch of bad guys, and then he takes a dude off a cliff, and it's like, oh my god, so good. Emotions. No, Grunt. Uh... And then three seconds later, Grunt comes climbing up the cliff again, and he's like, oh, that was tough. Um, and it completely undercut the entire scene for me. Um, and and yet it was very important to me that Grunt come back up. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, as somebody who wants a favorite character to survive, yeah, I'm glad he came, came back up. But as somebody who was who who this game had got to feel a lot of emotions and to be fully invested in a cutscene... I was just like, oh, yay, but also, come on. So that, like, that that to me is the sort of classic, like, if even if the character doesn't know the outcome, it undercuts so much. Have you done the Solarian side mission yet? Which, is that where you save the With... the fertile um, thingamithing? Yes. Yeah, yes I have. So you've seen the bit with Morden? Yeah, but I'm apparently not remembering it terribly well. Then we won't talk about it. <laughs> All right. Well, th- that clearly didn't have the same impact for me that this one did, because this was so impactful and then so undercut. So I agree with you if it's chronic. Like, mm-hmm. Supernatural sort of infamously has this issue where the the two main characters die and it never matters because they come back from everything. Um, but I think... I think we're being a little cold, guys. Um, Kaylee, you have Frozen written down. I do. Uh, and that's actually, I was watching Frozen when I got the idea for the show. Oh, hold on. Well, hold I... on. Hold on. We're being a little cold. Kaylee, you have <laughs> Frozen up. written down. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I'm not the only one that caught that. I'm like, Martha. No. Unintentional <laughs> punning doesn't count. Own it. Own it. Never. Um, but does Anna's sacrifice mean less because she gets to come back to life? 
I don't, I don't think, think so. so. But but see, you just said that it did. No, I was asking, like, does it lessen it if they do come back? And both of you just said that it does. Did I say and- that? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. You might be right that it comes down to chronic and it comes down to if the rug is pulled out too quickly underneath you. It might also be expectations of genre, where in Disney movies, I just assume, like, Anna will be okay. um, Because I've seen other Disney movies and that's how these things usually work. Whereas in... And, you know, at comics at this point, I'm just inured to any death because unless it's Gwen Stacy or uh, (laughs) Bruce Wayne's parents, it doesn't matter. Um, So it might just be the medium. But again, does knowing, like, intellectually that Anna will be okay at the end of the day lessen the emotional impact of watching her sacrifice herself for her sister? I'm saying no. I'm coming down hard on no because I cried like a baby when I watched that movie. <laughs> and Anna doesn't know she's coming back. She doesn't. And she does it anyway. Nobody does. Which is why I think it's, it could be called a sacrifice because at the moment she does it, she has no expectation that she's going to be okay. Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely not saying that it's not a sacrifice. I, I know. I guess yeah. I'm, I'm just saying, like, does it mean as much to us as the audience kind of meta metaphysically knowing it's like being genre aware enough to know that she'll be okay at the end of the day it means it means a lot to me um i feel like i feel like disney movies are sort of in their own bracket just because of the fact that it's something that you expect from them and i feel like it's it's less I feel like they try really hard to not play with your emotions as much as like Marvel or, you know, DC where it's just they don't lessen the sacrifice itself, but they don't make it seem as te- uh, no they do make it seem terrible. I mean, so so like Disney is geared and this isn't taking away from Disney, but G- Disney is geared towards children, so its sacrifices have to be like children friendly. Not that Marvel and DC aren't also geared towards children, but they're sort of geared in a different way. Is that yeah. sort of what you're getting at? Like, sort of like you expect you expect them to come back, right? Even though there is a sacrifice, and you know that, you know it's it's a big thing. They did it to save someone they love, or you know, to help someone they love. Not necessarily knowing that they're going to come back. They never know that they're going to come back. Um, Unlike the supernatural guys who I think actually do expect it at this yeah, point. Yeah, or <laughs> I feel like that since there is such a big time gap with like a DC comic versus a Disney movie, you sort of, as a person, you like accept that they're gone. And then when they come back, you feel a little bit betrayed by it. Like, oh, I thought you were dead. You gave me all these emotions. You know, I'm upset about this. And then I had to like, you know, grow as a person and get over it, at least for the like first couple of times that this has happened. Whereas like in a Disney movie, it's it's resolved really fast. So you're like, okay, you almost died. You did die. You came back. I had that like roller coaster of emotion go on and I'm better. I'm back. I can like cheer you on now that you are living again, I guess. I guess that that doesn't negate. Martha, what you're saying about, like, you had all the emotions in the moment. Even yes. though you knew that within ten minutes, it would probably be okay again. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, be, partly because it's, like, it's the different category of, like, Disney sacrifice. Which isn't designed to undercut it, but just to, like, like you, you're perpetually retooling your expectations. Yes. And when the expectations are that it's going to be okay then the sacrifice can still matter and still be meaningful. Well, you still also meta are aware that like, yeah, but then it'll be okay. Yeah. The last idea that I want to pose to you guys is this question of earned sacrifice or like the idea that we have, by we, I mean characters. Um, The idea that characters must sacrifice something in order to, have earned what they are 
reaching for. Um, the very specific thing that I want to talk about is I put Twilight on my list of supplementary materials. And that is because for a long time, one of the things that made me very upset about the Twilight narrative was the fact that Bella, at the end of the day, sacrifices nothing and gets everything that she wants. Um, the whole story, the whole time is telling, like, she is telling you, like, oh, I'll have to give up my family and I'll have to give up my mortality and, like, I won't be able to have babies and it'll be, like, I have to give up everything, but I'm willing to do it because, you know, I, I love this guy and this is the life that I want to lead. Um, and over the course of the story, she ends up not actually having to give up anything. She's still able to have a kid through, you know, plot magic. Um her she as far as i as far as we the readers can tell she still gets to maintain a relationship with her family um and for a long time i was like well so why then does her story mean anything and then i had to stop and go well why do we expect that why do we expect characters to have to give up something in order to get what they want like why can't her story be meaningful if she doesn't actually sacrifice anything, if she gets to have everything she wants, why can't that be a satisfying uh, end result? Um, I feel like for me, it's the balance of you get you win some, you lose some, where if you just win everything, it kind of feels like cheapened in a way. Um, and I really love watching characters grow, learn, and develop and say, okay, well, you didn't win this one, you'll win the next one, or um, all these things that sort of make you more of a well-balanced character. And if you just get everything, and you just win everything, and you don't have to give up A to get B and C, then it just it feels sort of too good to be true, a little bit on the but weak side. I well, but then I look at my life and I think realistically, I haven't lost anything. And I consider myself to be a fully developed character. Well, true, but you've still struggled. Yeah, but so does Bella. I mean, she struggles with stuff. She doesn't give anything up. This, I also think, is very gender dependent. Um, frequently stories starring girls or women involve them sacrificing something for their families so it may also be something that we're sort of coded to expect and then when you have a narrative like twilight and i should i should make clear at this point that i'm not a twilight supporter there are aspects of it that i think get undervalued because of how terrible the book as a whole is um so i've become somewhat of an apologist while also maintaining that it is it's a bad book um so i just want to i just want to make <laughs> that's that clear. fair <laughs> Um, but I think one of the things that gets lost about it in all of the justifiable criticism is that we kind of, I think, are trained to expect the the sacrificial narrative, especially when it comes to girls, and I don't think Disney has helped this at all, is to be one of sacrifice. Like, they can get what they want, but they have to give up something in order to get it. And yeah. that doesn't seem fair to me. So, as, as somebody who's never consumed any Twilight, um, it's always struck me as a wish-fulfillment narrative. Um, mm -hmm. And to me... Absolutely. To me, fiction that is being wish-fulfillment fiction inherently will probably have less sacrifice because that sort of doesn't jive as easily with wish-fulfillment. Um how do you feel about Batman, Pete? Uh, <laughs> Batman lost his parents, okay? <laughs> as as everyone well knows. Does that make it does that make it not a wish fulfillment narrative? Oh, no, no, I mean like Batman is one thousand percent wish fulfillment narrative. Um, <laughs> and as we've discussed in last episode and previous episodes, Batman is not a terribly well like well adjusted character. Um True. I don't think anyone should try to model his or her life off Batman or any of his um uh, sidekicks, wards, etc. Um, but Martha, I, I wanted to contrast Twilight with another thing you had on your additional sources, which I yes. was literally um, silently hitting the table in excitement about when you brought up this topic, which is His Dark Materials. Um, <gasps> which, yeah, like, can we talk about how great this is? Um, 
Be- because, my heart. <laughs> um, because both Lyra and Will, independently and together, sacrifice so much in that series. But also, they do so because the stakes are so high. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's that's what it comes down to, is in a narrative, if the stakes are so high, then there must be sacrifices. Otherwise, what Kaylee says is totally true. Like, Lyra would absolutely not grow as a human if she hadn't, in, like, had to deal with all the sacrifices and hardships that she encountered and had to make. Um, in, in The Amber Spyglass, her journey to the Land of the Dead, where she had to give up Pan... Not only is it one of the most heartbreaking scenes in like literature, uh, but also absolutely changed and grew her as a person. Um, absolutely. And and because the stakes are that high, that is necessary. And so when you have a, a story where the stakes are super high, but there's no sacrifice, it feels cheap. Okay, but I don't think that Twilight is that kind of story. Right, because I think I it's think a wish Twilight... fulfillment story. So like, you can do whatever you want then. Yeah, I I think that, but I do also think that it's important to recognize both that you can have stories that are low stakes, that involve sacrifice, that may be of great personal importance. Um, And you can also have stories where the stakes are really high. I'm sorry, I lost, I lost track of what I was talking about. You can have stories that are smaller, that can be satisfying without these big acts of sacrifice. Um, or you can have stories that are smaller that have acts of sacrifice that maybe don't involve saving the world, but on a very personal level, uh, they mean a lot. Scale, I think. Yeah, I'm talking about scale. Sure. So like, I, I, I totally fitting agree. the narrative. Yeah. So like in his Dark Materials, which breaks my heart forever, um, you know, we're talking about a story where the fate of the universe is at stake. So like. Yes, people do have to give things up in order to save the world. Um, But then when you look at a story like Twilight, where the only things, and I put only in quotes because this doesn't make them less important to the characters uh, in question, but the only things that are at stake are the the personal happiness of some people. And I just think it's interesting that we talk about... Isn't there some war with vampires or something going on in Twilight? But that's... It's not the point of the story. Okay. I wish it was. <laughs> um, and I, I just think it's interesting that we think of, even at that level, someone's happiness as being something that they have to earn rather than something that they can just have. That's fair, because 90% of my point was about the stakes needing just, like, needing to be, you know, on par with the sacrifice. Um and you're right that if the stakes are are low scale and personal, then I don't feel like there must be sacrifice. I don't know. If or there I... can be there can be sacrifice just on a smaller level. Like you can. Totally. I saw them. This is not one that I wrote down, but it is one that I'm thinking of, um, sort of off the cuff. Um, I saw the film Brooklyn last year, which is about uh, Saoirse Ronan plays a girl from. Ireland who immigrates to the to the United States um, right around when the Irish famine is happening and she meets an Italian gentleman um, they get married and then she goes home to visit her family for a funeral um, she hasn't told them that they're married um, but it quickly becomes clear that she can either stay in Ireland and have a life with her family or she can go back to the United States and have a life with this man that she has like created um, a home for herself with so like it's a very small stakes movie kind of in the grand scheme of things but for her character the stakes are really big so I, th- I think it's also kind of interesting to talk about sacrifice in terms of uh, the scale that it's happening at and how that is relative to the person that it's happening to it's kind of a good note to end on it I is. if I uh, can sort of flatter myself for a moment there and pete if you haven't seen brooklyn you gotta i um is that the one that also has joaquin phoenix no that's the immigrant um no i haven't seen brooklyn although i love shirsi ronan she's she's breathtaking in it it's wonderful 
And it was actually really nice to see a movie where the fate of the world wasn't at stake. It all comes down to the genre, right? Like Brooklyn is is like oh, the yeah. immigrant. It's like, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a period drama. It's gonna be about something else. Oh yeah. And it's all, I mean, it's all relative to the kind of story that you're reading. Totes. And that's all the time we have on this week's episode. Martha, what is our topic for next episode? Next episode, we're going to get real meta uh, and talk about alternate facts. uh, The way that we read and relate to the news, specifically uh, inspired by the... um, prevalence of fake news in our current cultural climate. Uh, For my homework, I'm going to be assigning the 2003 film Shattered Glass, starring Hayden Christensen, because God forbid we go a single episode without a Star Wars reference. (laughs) And what is your homework assignment, Pete? Um, I am assigning uh, the West Wing episode, Take Out the Trash Day, from season one, Episode 13, I think that after November, a lot of us started re-watching The West Wing, or even before November. Um, let's all go back to a time when the suits were poorly cut and looked big and blocky, <laughs> and uh, Jed Bartlett was our president. So, uh, Season 1, Episode 13, Take Out the Trash Day of The West Wing. This is wonderful. I'm so happy that you did that. <laughs> I've never watched West Wing, you guys. Ooh, get excited! Kaylee! <laughs> so yeah, that's a thing that I haven't done. <laughs> oh, Kaylee, um, what's your homework for next week? My homework for next week is Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix by J.K. Rowling. Ooh, um, what is that about? I've never heard of that <laughs> book or author. You're a troll and I don't appreciate it. (laughs) Uh, No, I'm I'm looking forward to it. Uh, We will be reconvening in two weeks, which gives you plenty of time to do your homework. As always, the topic and homework assignments can be found at our website, homeworkpodcast.com. You can find our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and wherever else fine podcasts can be found. Our home on the web is homeworkpodcast.com. You can find us on Twitter at DYDYH Podcast, and we are also on Facebook. If you have questions, comments, or ideas for future shows, email us at show at homeworkpodcast.com. Tweeting, Facebook messages, or blog comments also work. Martha, where can we find you online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Magical Martha. And how about you, Pete? You can find me at Twitter at Pico3000, P-I-K-O-3000. And you can find me on Instagram at TrickyLemon. Class dismissed. Class dismissed.